Audio number 69, Congregation of the Dead, part 49. God's War, part 3. Proverbs 21, 16. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3, 2. Before we begin this message, we will turn to John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, who also wrote Grace Abounding, which is his testimony of his agonization to enter in at the straight gate. John Bunyan's personal testimony parallels much of what is written in his allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. As we read through his testimony, hopefully we can get an idea of what it is like to agonize to enter in at the straight gate. Our fast food free will friends offers a fast food free will conversion in which we can accept or reject Jesus at our pleasure with our own free will. But as we have discussed many times, Martin Luther, who was the king of the Reformation, king of the bondage of the will movement, writes in his book, Bondage of the Will, written against Erasmus, who wrote Freedom of the Will, Martin Luther writes that free will is a fiction. And as we've also mentioned many times, we do not need the Bible to determine that free will is a fiction. It can be determined with self-evident truths. So as we commence with John Bunyan's agonization to enter in at the straight gate, let us learn from him and reflect upon our own sin. Paragraph 90. But I, John Bunyan, got nothing at what he said at present. Only when he came to the application of the fourth particular, this was the word he said, If it be so, that the saved soul is Christ's love, when under temptation and desertion, then poor tempted soul, when thou art assaulted and afflicted with temptations and the hidings of God's face, yet think on these two words, my love, still. Paragraph 91. So as I was going home, these words came again into my thoughts, and I well remember as they came in, I said thus in my heart, what shall I get by thinking on these two words? This thought had no sooner passed through my heart, but these words began thus to kindle in my spirit. Thou art my love, thou art my dove, twenty times together, and still as they ran in my mind, they waxed stronger and warmer and began to make me look up but being as yet between hope and fear, I still replied in my heart, but is it true? But is it true? At which that sentence fell upon me. He wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, Acts 12, 9, paragraph 92. Then I began to give place to the word which with power did over and over make this joyful sound within my soul. 
Thou art my love. Thou art my love. And nothing shall separate thee from my love. And with that, my heart was filled full of comfort and hope. And now I could believe that my sins should be forgiven me. Yea, I was now so taken with the love and mercy of God that I remember I could not tell how to contain until I got home. I thought I could have been spoken of his love, have told of his mercy to me, even to the very crows that sat upon the plowed lands before me, had they been capable to have understood me. Wherefore, I said in my soul with much gladness, well, I would I had a pen and ink here. I would write this down before I go any farther. For surely I will not forget this 40 years hence. But alas, with less than 40 days, I began to question all again, which made me begin to question all still. Paragraph 93. Yet still at times I was helped to believe that it was a true manifestation of grace unto my soul, though I had lost much of the life and favor of it. Now about a week or a fortnight after this, I was much followed by the scripture. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. Luke 22, verse 31. And sometimes it would so sound loud within me, yea, as it was called so strongly after me, that once above all the rest, I turned my head over my shoulder, thinking verily that some man had behind me called me. Being at a great distance, methought he called so loud. It came as I have thought since to have stirred me up to prayer and to watchfulness. It came to acquaint me that a cloud and a storm was coming down upon me. But I understood it not. Paragraph 94. Also, as I remember, that time that it called to me so loud was the last time that it sounded in mine ears. But methinks I hear still with what a loud voice these words, Simon, Simon, sounded in mine ears. I thought verily, as I have told you, that somebody had called after me that was half a mile behind me. And although that was not my name, yet it made me suddenly look behind me, believing that he that called so loud meant me. Paragraph 95. But so foolish was I and ignorant that I knew not the reason of this sound, which, as I did both see and feel soon after, was sent from heaven as an alarm to awaken me to provide for what was coming. Only I should muse and wonder in my mind to think what should be the reason of this scripture, and that at this rate, so often and so loud should still be sounding and rattling in mine ears. 
But as I said before, I soon after perceived the end of God therein, paragraph 96, for about the space of a month after, a very great storm came down upon me, which handled me 20 times worse than all I had met with before. It came stealing upon me now by one piece, then by another. First, all my comfort was taken from me. Then darkness seized upon me, after which whole floods of blasphemies, both against God, Christ, and the scriptures were poured out upon my spirit to my great confusion and astonishment. These blasphemous thoughts were such as stirred up questions in me against the very being of God and of his only beloved Son, as whether there were in truth a God or Christ, and whether the holy scriptures were not rather a fable and cunning story than the holy and pure word of God. Paragraph 97. The tempter would also much assault me with this. How can you tell but that the Turks had as good scriptures to prove their Mohammed, the Savior, as we have to prove our Jesus is. And could I think that so many ten thousands in so many countries and kingdoms should be without the knowledge of the right way to heaven, if there were indeed a heaven? And that we only, who live in a corner of the earth, should alone be blessed therewith. Everyone to think his own religion rightest, both Jews and Moors and pagans, and how if all our faith and Christ and scriptures should be, but I think so too. Paragraph 98. Sometimes I have endeavored to argue against these suggestions and to set some of the sentences of the blessed Paul against them. But alas, I quickly felt when I thus did such arguings as these would return again upon me, though we made so great a matter of Paul and of his words. Yet how could I tell but that in very deed, he being a subtle and cunning man, might give himself up to deceive with so strong delusions and also take the pains and travel to undo and destroy his fellows, paragraph 99. These suggestions, with many others, which at this time I may not and dare not utter, neither by word or pen, did make such a seizure upon my spirit and did so overweigh my heart, both with their number, continuance, and fiery force that I felt as if there were nothing else but these from morning to night within me, and as though indeed there could be room for nothing else, and also concluded that God had in very wrath to my soul given me up to them to be carried away with them as with a mighty whirlwind, paragraph 100 only by the distaste that they gave unto my spirit. I felt there was something in me that refused to embrace them, 
But this consideration I then only had when God gave me leave to swallow my spittle. Otherwise, the noise and strength and force of these temptations would have drowned and overflown and, as it were, bury all such thoughts or the remembrance of any such thing. While I was in this temptation, I often found my mind suddenly put upon it to curse and swear or to speak some grievous thing against God or Christ his Son and of the Scriptures. Paragraph 101. Now I thought, surely I am possessed of the devil. At other times, again, I thought I should be bereft of my wits, for instead of lauding and magnifying God the Lord with others, if I have but heard him spoken of, presently some most horrible blasphemous thought or other would bolt out of my heart against him, so that whether I did think that God was or again did think there was no such thing, no love, nor peace, nor gracious disposition could I feel within me. Paragraph 102. These things did sink in me into very despair, for I concluded that such things could not possibly be found amongst them that love God. I often, when these temptations had been with force upon me, did compare myself to the case of such a child whom some gypsy hath by force took up in her arms and is carrying from friend and country. Kick sometimes I did, and also shriek and cry, but yet I was bound in the wings of temptation, and the wind would carry me away. I thought also of Saul and of the evil spirit that did possess him, and did greatly fear that my condition was the same with that of his. Paragraph 103. In these days, when I have heard others talk of what the sin against the Holy Ghost, then would the tempter so provoke me to desire to sin, that against sin, that I was as if I could not, must not, neither should be quiet until I had committed it, now, no sin would serve but that. If it were to be committed by speaking of such a word, then I have been as if my mouth would have spoken that word, whether I would or no. And in no strong a measure was this temptation upon me, that often I have been ready to clap my hand under my chin, to hold my mouth from opening. And to that end also, I have had thoughts In our last message, we found that God's war was a curse put upon Satan for deceiving Eve and a curse put upon Eve for believing Satan over God's command. So John Q. Public of America, being a simple man, asked himself what kind of curse could God put between Eve and Satan? We as John Q. Public of America know from our last message on God's war that all of us natural men Americans are born into this world with Satan as our spiritual father, with a nature in likeness, not to God, but in likeness to Satan, 
the lusts of our spiritual father, Satan, we will do. We learn that Satan is the father of lies. And we, as John Q. Public of America, do not need to read the Bible to know we are liars by nature. And that line in our heart cannot be eradicated no matter how hard we try. We also learned that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And common sense tells John Q. Public that all of us are capable of committing murder with the genesis of that murder beginning with the evil proclivity of anger not being forbidden and not repented over and thus festering into murder. So if we extrapolate from there, what about pride in our heart? We all know that even in sports, pride or overconfidence can lead to defeat. A haughty spirit always precedes a fall. So the evil proclivity of pride is just like the evil proclivity of wine. We work hard at detecting our tendency to add or subtract from a truth and forbid it and then repent over it before it becomes an act of sin, or in this case, a lie. Likewise, we learn to detect the pride in our heart, or that is the haughty spirit, forbid it and repent over it before the evil proclivity of pride escapes. We use the law of God to show us that God is not pleased with lying or pride. In fact, God hates both lying and pride. In fact, which one does he hate most, lying or pride? Let us find out in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate, Yea, seven are abomination unto him. Verse 17. Number one, a proud look. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, and the hands that shed innocent blood. So we see that God hates pride even more than he hates Line. Now, let us listen to King Solomon again in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. Better is it to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So just in these few verses, we have seen that pride is an abomination to our Lord. Pride goes before a fall. And pride is number one on God's hate list with wine coming in second place. King Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. 
in which he found through experience the following. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king, that is, King Solomon in Jerusalem. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. King Solomon's father, King David, said this, Psalm 39, verse 5. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, it is truly every man at his best state, that is, his best moral state, is all together vanity. Verse 6, surely every man walketh in a vain show. And now let us listen to Jesus, who commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Mark 12, verse 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, verse 31. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Think about that. Why would Jesus tell us to love our neighbor as ourselves, except for the fact that he knows we are in love with ourselves? And who among us can love our neighbor more than ourselves? Very few, if any. So now let us go back to King Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. And he says this, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, that is King Solomon. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So John Q. Public of America says to himself, What does vanity of vanities mean? But first, what is vanity? Is not vanity self-love or self-admiration or self-glory or egomania? So then what does vanity of vanities mean? So we say to ourselves, who would be the mathematician of mathematicians? That is pretty obvious, is it not? It would be the best mathematician around. What about an easier one? King of kings. And who is the king of the kings but Jesus? So what then is vanity of vanities? It would be equivalent to self-love of self-loves. 
or egomania of egomanias. We all know someone who is the egomania of egomanias in our circle of influence, do we not? Now, let us look at self-love of self-loves. What are some of our self-loves? Maybe Papa Murphy's pizza is one of our favorite foods. Or football is our favorite sport. Or maybe it is something forbidden, like fornication is a self-love of ours. Or theft is a self-love of ours. But what is the self-love of self-loves? It is ourself, is it not? And that is why Jesus says to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we are going to love our neighbor as ourselves, there is going to be a lot of love going towards that neighbor. For we are all born into this world in love with ourselves, with self-love. But what is the problem? We are born into this world with self-love rather than love of God. So what again does King Solomon say in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2? Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or all is self-love. We are born into this world in love with ourselves, not in love with God. And that is why Jesus tells us we must deny ourselves. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Verse 22, Then Peter took Jesus and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Verse 23, But Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Verse 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul. 
Verse 27, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verse 28, verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Why would Jesus call Peter Satan? What is the key take-home point of God's war in our last message? Was it not the war between Jesus and his elect against Satan and all of us Americans who are yet to be elected? Former Mr. Morality did not know he was born into this world as one of the elect. And so he helped deliver Jesus over to the Romans because Jesus had not yet effectually called him out of darkness. So why would Jesus tell Peter, get behind me, Satan? Answer, because Jesus had to be crucified and take on hell for the elect in order to finish the job. Satan did not want Jesus to take on hell for his elect and fulfill the moral law for his elect in order to win the court case in his father's courtroom. We as natural men Americans must have had the righteousness of God imputed to us in order for us to be made legally holy and fit for heaven. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. Verse 23. But Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus knew that the self-love of self-loves was ourselves. And thus, without denying ourselves, there is no way we are going to be able to love God, that is, Jesus. Who but Jesus is the glory of glories? Who but Jesus is the holy of holies? And what is the only way that Jesus can be holy? If he breaks one of his father's commands, would he be holy? No, Jesus must follow his father's commands perfectly for us, the elect, in order for him to be holy. But we as natural men Americans are anything but holy. We are arrogant. We are liars. We are anything but holy. So what is the self-hate of self-hates in us Americans? 
We are to hate what our Lord hates, are we not? What does our Lord hate? Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Proverbs 6, 17. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. 18. And heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. Verse 19, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Our Lord hates all these things. Do we hate all these things in ourselves? What is the self-hate of self-hates? Is it not original sin? Is it not the evil proclivities of our heart that we hate. Should not original sin be the self-hate of all self-hates? When we hate original sin and the fig leaves of morality, we will love the righteousness of God. We will love the holiness of God. Can we be a follower of Jesus Christ without hating the self-hate of self-hates, that is, without hating our own original sin from which all the evil in this world flows from? If we hate our original sin, do we not hate our own life? We must remember that Satan is our spiritual father, and Satan is the father of lies and was a murderer from the beginning. And the lusts of our Father we will do. Where do our lusts come from but original sin, which are definitely not in likeness to God, but in likeness to Satan? So do we hate our original sin? We should. For our lusts of our spiritual Father, Satan we will do. Does Satan hate Jesus? Is Satan at war with Jesus? Is Jesus at war with Satan? Of course, Satan hates Jesus. And if Satan is our spiritual father, do we then not hate the true Jesus, but are in love with the fake Jesus, the counterfeit Jesus that Satan offers us? For his ministers are ministers of light, as we have learned many times throughout these messages. And we are not to be surprised. For Satan himself makes himself a minister of light. If our original sin is in likeness to Satan's lusts, do we hate our original sin? We should, shouldn't we? For our lust of our spiritual father, Satan, we will do. But we as natural men Americans don't hate our original sin, do we? In fact, before we are made a new creation, we walked with Satan, our spiritual father, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our mind. Former Mr. Rowley writes to his brethren in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you, that is my Ephesian brethren, hath he quickened, or made a new creation, who were dead in, in trespasses and sin. 
your original sin, the evil proclivities of your heart had yet to be made alive to you. That is, made sin to you that needed to be repented of before it became an act of sin. And you were even dead to your acts of sin, fulfilling the desires of the lusts of your flesh without any shame. Back to the top again. Verse 1, And you, my Ephesian brethren, hath he quickened or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, Wherein in times past ye, that would be my Ephesian brethren, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. It's Satan's spirit that works within us as natural men Americans and makes us children of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle. In times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, because Satan is our spiritual father, even as others. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us, made us a new creation, together with Christ, by grace are you saved. To sum up, King Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is self-love. We are in love with ourselves and not in love with God because Satan is our spiritual father. And Jesus and Satan are at war with each other. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent is at enmity with the seed of the woman, that is Jesus. There is hatred between Jesus and Satan. And therefore, since we are born in this world with Satan as our spiritual father, there's hatred between us and Jesus. But as a new creation, our original sin has become alive to us. And now we hate our original sin because we know now that our original sin is the fountain from which all evil flows in this world. And our original sin is condemning us. And we are now in agreement with God. For we can see our heart as he does, that we should be condemned to hell. So we hate our original sin, which in reality is hating our life. And Jesus says, if we do not hate our life, we cannot be his disciple. Dr. Luke, chapter 14, verse 25. And there went great multitudes, that would be like John Q. Public of America, 
And there went great multitudes with Jesus. And he turned and said unto them, verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and hate not his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus says we must hate our life because we have the original sin, which is in likeness to Satan. And as a new creation, we are alive to it. And it's easy to hate it. For without Christ, our sin nature is condemning us to hell. But does not our father, our mother, our wife, our children all have this evil sin nature in likeness to Satan? And thus we are to hate them because they are just like us. Jesus goes on, verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Verse 29, lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. Verse 30, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first? and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Verse 32, Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, sendeth an ambassador and desires conditions of peace. Verse 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all, that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 34, salt is good, but if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? Verse 35, it is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear let him hear. Not only must we hate our life in order to be a disciple of Jesus, but we must deny ourselves. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, 
and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Verse 26, for what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So Satan does not want us denying the evil proclivities of our heart. Satan does not want us hating our original sin. For the lusts of our flesh are in likeness to the lusts of his flesh. And if we're hating the lusts of our flesh, then we're hating Satan. And he wants us to continue to hate Jesus. He wants us to hate Jesus so much that we would desire to pull Jesus from his throne, just as Satan himself desires to be greater than Jesus. The vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The self-love of self-loves, all is self-love, all is egomania. But what about self-will? The self-will of self-wills, the mathematician of mathematicians. Who has the self-will of self-wills? Let us find out. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, that is Satan, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Verse 13. For thou, Satan, hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And what is the response of God? Verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Verse 16. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake the kingdoms? Verse 17, That made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? Verse 18, All the kings of the nations, even all of them lie in glory, every one in his own house. Verse 19, but thou, Satan, are cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch and as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. So in this passage, we see the self-will of self-wills the mathematician of the mathematicians, the self-will of the self-wills. Satan has the greatest self-will against God. 
in Genesis 3.15, where we found that God's war began with the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. The war was Satan against the elect. And we found that Satan would bruise Jesus' heel, but Jesus would bruise Satan's head. And in this passage in Isaiah 14, that Satan is defeated, that Satan's head is bruised. However, the religious leaders at the time of Jesus, that is the Pharisees, had such self-hate against Jesus via envy. They handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. The Pharisees, with the help of the Romans, crucified God. Jesus' heel was bruised. But in being bruised, there was victory. For Jesus being physically crucified was a picture portraying the fact that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin. That is, made original sin. Made the elect's original sin in order that Jesus may take on hell for them, that his elect would not have to endure hell. Jesus became the get out of hell free card for his elect. So when Jesus told his disciples beforehand that he must be killed and then rise again the third day, what did Peter say? Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time forth, began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Verse 22, then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Verse 23, But Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So why did Jesus call Peter Satan? But for the fact that Peter was fulfilling the lust of his flesh and his flesh was in likeness to Satan's flesh. Peter was looking just at the natural man side of things. He was not seeing the spiritual side of what was happening. Hidden behind his physical crucifixion would be Jesus who knew no sin would be made original sin by his father forcing his father then to punish him in hell in order to neuter the elect's death sentence to hell so Jesus says to Peter get behind me Satan for instead of being spiritual you are fulfilling the lusts of your flesh, which is in likeness to Satan. Peter, you must remember that original sin 
is the self-love of self-loves. And if you are going to follow me, you must deny that self-love. You must deny the lust of your flesh. You must deny your original sin and flee to the righteousness of God. To flee to my righteousness. Hunger and thirst after righteousness that you might be filled with my love. Again, verse 23. But Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself deny his original sin and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. If we hate our life and deny ourselves we will always be victorious over Satan, thus bruising his head. And all he can do in retaliation is to bruise our heel. Satan is on a leash. Most of us natural men Americans have heard of the biblical character named Job and the sufferings of Job. But probably most of John Q. Public of America does not know that these sufferings were caused by Satan. And yet Satan was on a leash. Satan is able to take away Job's family. He's able to take away Job's fortune. And he's able to give Job ulcers of the worst sort. But God instructs Satan that he cannot take Job's life. Job chapter 1, verse 12. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And chapter 2, verse 6. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, Job is in thine hand, but save his life. So our Lord had a leash on Satan in both these verses. Satan could go only so far in his persecution of God's servant, Job. Satan was instructed not to take Job's life in both cases. In the next passage, Jesus meets two men possessed with devils. And the devils say to Jesus, After you cast us out, allow us to go into the herd of swine. Matthew 8, verse 31. So the devils besought Jesus, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us, or allow us to go away into the herd of swine. Verse 32. And Jesus said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. 
And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. So let us Americans who have been born again, who are new creations, remember that Satan can only bruise our heel, but Satan's head will be bruised. Satan is on his way to hell. Now let us listen to Jude most likely a physical brother of Jesus who wrote the book of Jude, which is the second to the last book out of the 27 books in the New Testament. Jude speaks of Satan being chained, reserved unto the judgment of the great day. Jude chapter one, verse five. I, Jude, will therefore put you in remembrance Though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, about two and a half million of them, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Verse 6, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. And fisherman John writes in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So again, we see that Satan's head is bruised by Jesus. But we must remember that not only does Satan hate Jesus, but he hates the elect. And fisherman Peter warns us about Satan in First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Verse 10, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Verse 11, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So now... Before we dig deeper into Job's life 
and his battle against Satan. Let us return to King Solomon and the vanity of vanities, the self-love of self-loves, the mathematician of mathematicians. And who was the self-love of self-loves but ourselves? For Jesus tells us we are in love with ourselves. The self-hate of self-hates should be our original sin. For if we do not hate our condemnable sin nature, we will not hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we might be experientially filled with the love of Jesus. For it is the love of his love that drives us to speak of him wherever the Spirit directs us. So we ourselves are the vanity of vanities, the egomania of egomanias. But where does this self-love come from? For hopefully it is clear that our self-love must perish in order to love God as he commands. God is love. And God doesn't want us adding on to his love, but wants to impute his love to us as all our self-love perishes. For how can we love God the way Jesus commands us to love him if we are occupied with our own self-love? Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Verse 29. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Verse 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God, with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Verse 31. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Now, our fast food free will theologians will simply imply Jesus said this, verse 30, and thou shalt endeavor to love the Lord thy God. Now, it didn't say endeavor, but it said, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God. But our fast food free will theologians would have us believe, and thou shalt endeavor to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and endeavor with all thy soul and endeavor with all thy mind and endeavor with all thy strength. Or maybe, and thou shalt labor to love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. Or maybe thou shalt give blood, sweat, and tears to love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Or maybe thou shalt toil 
or thou shalt give elbow grease, or thou shalt slog to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. But Jesus did not command us to do any such thing, did he? Verse 30, and thou shalt love, not endeavor to love, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Well, how are we doing as natural men Americans? For if we commit one sin, are we loving God? Can we love God at all? We are all born into this world as natural men Americans with Satan as our spiritual father. And we have found conclusively that Satan and Jesus are at war with each other. And even the elect who as yet have been experientially elected are at war with Jesus as with former Mr. Morality being the prime example, lending a hand and handing Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. Where did this will of ours to pull Jesus from his throne come from in former Mr. Morality and his colleagues who had Jesus crucified? For this is the self-will of all self-wills, is it not? Well, who have we found to be the leader of the self-will of self-wills? That is correct. It is our spiritual father, Satan. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, that is Satan, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Verse 13. For thou, Satan, hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And what is the response of God? Verse 15, yet thou, Satan, shall be brought down to hell. So the leader of the self-will of the self-wills is Satan himself. And we as natural men Americans, as spiritual children of Satan, also have a self-will to defeat the true Jesus. Who are we as pint-sized, itty-bitty, micro-miniature, knee-high to a grasshopper, natural men Americans looking up into the sky from planet Earth, shaking our fists at Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. Is that not the egomania of egomanias? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is arrogance. Is it not the self-conceit big-headedness, cockiness of all cockinesses. But God just sits in heaven and laughs at the foolishness of the vanity of our vanities. 
Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, that is Jesus, saying, verse 3, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, God that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision, that is, contemptuous ridicule, mockery. The Lord mocks them. Verse 5, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Verse 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That is King Jesus. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day, have I begotten thee? Verse 8, ask me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Verse 9, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10, be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Verse 11, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. Therefore, behind this self-will of Satan, is vanity, big-headedness, pride out of control. And now let us look to Pilgrim's Progress to experience the conflict between Christian and Satan. Satan in this allegory is referred to as Apollon. Later in this message, Apollon is referred to as Beelzebub, the captain of this fiend. Remember that Satan came in the form of a serpent to Adam and Eve. Apollon, or Satan in this allegory, is in the form of a fiend and is covered with scales like a fish. John Bunyan says these scales represent his pride. This fiend is clothed with scales of vanity. But as we have learned, Satan is the vanity of vanities. And Satan says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And as part of the curse, God has put enmity between Eve and Satan, between Eve's seed, which is Christ, and Satan's seed, which are the non-elect. Satan hates Jesus, and thus he hates his elect. Satan has a tight grip on all of us natural man Americans. None of us know whether or not we are one of the elect until Jesus comes in and plucks us from Satan's tight grip. And we know at that moment that we have absolutely no fingerprints on our salvation. It is just like our natural birth. 
We cannot accept or reject our natural birth, and the same is true with our spiritual birth. But if we have accepted one of Satan's fake Jesuses by a fast food free will decision for Jesus, in reality, we're nothing more than a moralist. And if we are not careful, as a dog returns to his vomit, we will return completely back to the world and reject Christianity. In fact, many atheists began as Christians, but came to see the folly of the whole fast food free will narrative. But the true Christian, though he may fall into sin, will never turn like a dog to its vomit. For the true Christian, once he has been made a new creation, cannot be plucked by Satan from his father's hand. Jesus tells us in John 10, verse 27, My sheep, that is the elect, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Verse 29, my Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, and I and my Father are one. The true Christian is the one whom Jesus, the stronger, has bound Satan, the strong man armed and taken from Satan, and has made him a new creation, and thus has a new spiritual father. That is, Jesus' father, once we have been adopted by our Father in heaven and are a true Christian, all of us can agree that we would never want to go back to the darkness we were in darkness and now we are in light and there's no amount of money or anything in the world that could be offered us that we would want to go back to that darkness and again be under the tyranny of Satan. Keep these thoughts in mind that we have just discussed as Christian refutes Satan's attempt to come back and serve him. That is Satan. Now let us commence with the conflict between Christian and Apollon in Pilgrim's Progress. Quote, But now, in this valley of humiliation, poor Christian was hard put to it, for he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him, whose name was Apollon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore to turn the back to him would give him a greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore, Christian resolved to venture and stand for his ground. For, thought he, 
Had I no more in my eye than the saving of my life, it would be the best way to stand. So he went on, and Apollon met him. Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. When he was come up to Christian, he beheld him with a disdainful countenance and thus began to question with him, Apollon, whence come you and whither are you bound? Christian, I am come from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil, and am going to the city of Zion, Apollon. By this I perceive thou art one of my subjects, for all that country is mine, and I am the prince and God of it, just like he is the prince of the earth now, that is Satan. How is it then that thou hast run away from thy king? That would be me, Satan. Were it not that I hope thou mayest do me more service, I would strike thee now at one blow to the ground. In other words, I would kill you right now, but I want you to come back and serve me. Christian, I was born indeed in your dominions, but your service was hard and your wages such as a man could not live on. For the wages of sin is death. The wages we receive are our reward for working. Sin is defined to be breaking God's law. So the hard work that we do in trying to follow the commandments through the fig leaves of morality cannot make us holy. And thus it is sin. It is breaking of God's law because we are not following the commandments perfectly. And thus the wages of sin is eternal death. And it is only through the imputed righteousness of God that we are made legally fit for heaven and our Father in heaven's courtroom. Again, Christian, I was born indeed in your dominions, but your service was hard and your wages such as a man could not live on. For the wages of sin is death, that is eternal death. Therefore, when I was come to years, I did as other prudent persons do, looked out, if perhaps I might mend myself. Apollon, there is no prince that will thus lightly lose his subject. Neither will I yet lose thee, Christian. But since thou complainest of thy service and wages, be content to go back. What our country will afford, I do here promise to give thee, Christian. But I have let myself to another, even to the king of princes, King Jesus, that is. And how can I with fairness go back with thee? Apollon, thou hast done in this according to the proverb, changed a bad for a worse. 
but it is ordinary for those that have professed themselves his servants after a while to give him the slip. Those would be the fast food free will Christians who made a decision for Christ, but were not plucked out of Satan's hands by Christ. But it is ordinary for those that have professed themselves his servants, but really weren't true Christians, after a while to give him, that is Jesus, the slip, and return again to me. Do thou so too, Christian. Christian, I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him, that is Jesus. How then can I go back from this and not be hanged as a traitor? Apollon, thou didst the same to me, and yet I am willing to pass by all, if now thou wilt yet turn again and go back. Christian, what I promised thee was before I came of age. And besides, I count that the prince under whose banner I now stand is able to absolve me, that is Prince Jesus, yea, and to pardon also what I did as to my compliance with thee, Satan, is Jesus can pardon my sins that I did in compliance with you, for my nature was in likeness to yours. And besides, O thou destroying Apollon, to speak truth, I like his, that is Jesus' service, I like Jesus' service, I like his wages, I like Jesus' servants, I like his government, I like his company, and I like his country better than thine, Satan or Apollon. Therefore, leave off to persuade me further. I am his, that is Jesus' servant, and I will follow him. Apollon, consider again, when thou art in cold blood, what thou art like to meet with in the way that thou goest, in other words, I have the power of death over you. Thou knowest that for the most part, his servants come to an ill end because they are transgressors against me and my ways. How many of them have been put to shameful deaths? And besides, thou countest his service better than mine, whereas he never came yet from the place where he is to deliver any that served him out of our hands. But as for me, how many times, as all the world very well knows, have I, Apollon or Satan, delivered either by power or fraud those that have faithfully served me from him, that is Jesus, and his though taken by them, and so I will deliver thee, Christian, his forbearing at present to deliver them is on purpose to try their love, whether they will cleave to him to the end. 
And as for the ill end thou sayest they come to, that is most glorious in their account for for present deliverance. They do not much expect it, for they stay for their glory, and then they shall have it when their prince, that is Jesus, comes in his and the glory of the angels. Apollon, thou hast already been unfaithful in thy service to him. And how dost thou think to receive wages of him? Christian, wherein, O Apollon, have I been unfaithful to him? Apollon, thou didst faint at first setting out when thou wast almost choked in the gulf of despond. Thou didst attempt wrong ways to be rid of thy burden, whereas thou shouldest stayed till thy prince had taken it off. Thou didst sinfully sleep and lose thy choice thing. Thou wast also almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when thou talkest of thy journey and of what thou hast heard and seen, thou art inwardly desirous of vain glory in all that thou sayest or doest. Satan says, look, you still have a sin nature and likeness to my nature, and it is full of vain glory, for I, Satan, am, am full of vain glory. Christian, all this is true and much more, which thou hast left out. But the prince, Jesus, whom I serve and honor, is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides these infirmities, Possess me in thy country, for there I sucked them in, and I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon from my prince. In other words, Satan, I now, with a repentant heart, mourn over those evil proclivities which are in likeness to you. You are the father of lies, and I am a liar. But unlike you, I mourn over my lion's sin nature, and my God is merciful and comforts me. Apollon. Then Apollon broke out in a grievous rage, saying, I am an enemy to this prince, Jesus. I hate his person. I hate his laws. I hate his people. I am come out on purpose to withstand thee. Christian, Apollon, beware what you do. For I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. I am no longer on the self-righteous highway to death, but I am on the righteousness of God highway, and I am seen as holy by my Father in heaven. Therefore, Satan, take heed to yourself. Apollon, then Apollon straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way and said, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare thyself to die. For I swear by my infernal den that thou shalt go no further. Here will I spill thy soul. And with that, he threw a flaming dart at his breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it. Former Mr. Morality calls this the shield of faith. And so prevented the danger of that. Then did Christian draw, for he saw it 
twas time to bestir him, and Apollon as fast made at him, throwing darts as thick as hail, by the which, notwithstanding all that Christian could do to avoid it, Apollon wounded him in his head, his hand and foot. This made Christian give a little back. Apollon therefore followed his work furiously, and Christian again took courage and resisted as manfully as he could. This sore combat lasted for above half a day, even till Christian was almost quite spent. For you must know that Christian, by the reason of his wounds, grew weaker and weaker. Then Apollon, espying his opportunity, began to gather close to Christian, and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. And with that Christian's sword, which is the word of God, flew out of his hand. Then said Apollon, I am sure of thee now. And with that he had almost pressed him to death, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollon was fetching his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword, that is his Bible, and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, for when I fall, I shall arise again. So what Christian did, he pulled out of his bosom the key of promise, just as Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness. That is, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he defeated Satan by saying, it is written, and then quoted the proper scripture to counter Satan. And likewise, we also counter Satan by being God's remembrance and reminding him of the promise that he has promised to us in order that he might act in behalf of us to deliver us in accordance to the promise. The true Christian with a broken spirit and a contrite heart eats and sleeps and drinks the promises of God. For it is in the promises that we know the will of God. On the other hand, the commands throw us to the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy, that again we might look to the promises of God for our deliverance. Now let us return to the spiritual battle between Apollon and Christian. Then said Apollon, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollon was fetching his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man. Christian reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. Actually, he's quoting Micah 7, 8. And with that, gave him a deadly thrust which made him give back as one that received his mortal wound. Christian, receiving that, made at him again. Nay, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. He quoted Romans eight thirty-seven there. And with that, Apollon 
spread forth his dragon wings and sped him away. That Christian for a season saw him no more. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In this combat, no man can imagine, unless he had seen and heard as I did, what yelling and hideous roaring Apollon made all the time of the fight. He spake like a dragon. And on the other side, what sighs and groans burst from Christian's heart. I never saw him all the while give so much as one pleasant look till he perceived he had wounded Apollon with his two-edged sword. Then, indeed, Christian did smile and look upward. But twas the dreadfulest sight that I ever saw. So when the battle was over, Christian said, I will hear, give thanks to him that have delivered me out of the mouth of the lion, to him that did help me against Apollon. And so he did, saying, Great Beelzebub, the captain of this fiend, designed my ruin. Therefore to this end he sent him harnessed out, and he with rage that hellish was did fiercely engage me. But blessed Michael, help me, and I, by dint of sword, did quickly make him fly. Therefore to him let me give lasting praise and thanks and bless his holy name always. Then there came to him a hand with some of the leaves of the tree of life, the which Christian took and applied to the wounds that he had received in the battle and was healed immediately. In Revelation 22, these leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Fisherman John writes of this in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 2. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruit, and yield her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So now Christian also sat down in that place to eat bread and to drink of the bottle that was given him a little before. So being refreshed, he addressed himself to his journey with his sword drawn in his hand. For he said, I know not, but some other enemy may be at hand. But he met with no other affront from Apollon quite through this valley. Now to us natural man Americans, this spiritual battle between Apollon and Christians seems a little far out, does it not? And the answer to that question is, yes, it is far out to us natural man Americans because we have not been yet made a new creation. Once we become a new creation, we are spiritual. And even as a baby 
Christian. We are aware of this spiritual warfare that is going on around us, even though we have very little scriptural knowledge about this spiritual war. Former Mr. Morality, who as a fast food free will Pharisee, was totally devoid of the knowledge of this spiritual warfare, even though he in the flesh was warring against Jesus, now as a new creation, understands this spiritual warfare and writes to his Corinthian brethren the following, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we, that would be me and my Corinthian brethren, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We think of Abraham Lincoln when he called the country to repentance on April 30th, 1863, asking the Americans to take one day off to go to their places of worship and to pray and, and fast. And then on July 1 through 3 of 1863 was the Gettysburg Battle, in which became the turning point of the war. And two years of previous losses were turned into almost two years of continual successes with Robert E. Lee surrendering on Palm Sunday, that is Jesus' triumphal entry as king, and Abraham Lincoln being assassinated five days later on Good Friday. And so spiritually speaking, Abraham Lincoln as king won the war, but it cost him his life and he became the sacrificial lamb. We as Americans, again, need to be aware of this spiritual war that is going on. And we need a leader that is going to lead the nation in repentance so that we might win the behind-the-scenes war because God is looking kindly upon us because we are looking to King Jesus to deliver us. Abraham Lincoln definitely understood this spiritual warfare, for he exhorts us as Americans of this fact by his proclamation of a national day of prayer and fasting to occur on April 30th, 1863. And this national fast was just a few months before the Battle of Gettysburg, which was the turning point of the Civil War. He writes, And whereas it is the duties of nations as well as men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God. Let us interrupt Abraham Lincoln here and look to see if God really is ruling the nations. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight: For the kingdom is, that is equal to, the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Psalm 67, 1. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Verse 2, in order that thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving health among all the nations. Verse 3, let the people 
praise thee. That is, let the American people praise thee. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. Former Mr. Morales speaks of this spiritual warfare to his brethren at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not ours. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God in order that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, let's remember, former Mr. Morality was fighting against Jesus in the flesh, and I had no idea about this spiritual warfare, but he certainly does now. Verse 11 again, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The devil was using former Mr. Morality to persecute Jesus. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, in order that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, that is the righteousness of God. Verse 15, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Verse 16, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So there is no question that former Mr. Morality, completely devoid of the spiritual warfare as a Pharisee, helping to crucify God. Now, as we have just seen, completely understands the spiritual warfare. And so if we as natural man Americans find this spiritual warfare to be completely mysterious, let us not be discouraged, but continue to agonize in at the straight gate. For when Jesus finds us and makes us a new creation, we will immediately understand and experience innately this spiritual warfare as a new creation. Now, let us bring this message to a conclusion by looking into the battle that Job had with Satan. And yet we will find that Satan was on God's retractable dog leash, his retractable angel leash. And God allowed Satan to take away Job's family, 
to take away Job's fortune and to take away Job's health. But God would not allow Satan to take away his life. So the question John Q. Public of America asks is why would God allow Satan to persecute his saints at all? We must remember that it was God that put enmity or hatred between Jesus and Satan as part of the curse. For Eve being deceived by Satan and Satan deceiving Eve and Adam following suit, this hatred God put between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman ended up being Jesus and his elect at amnesty with Satan and all those yet to be elected. The only way the second person of the Trinity could save his elect was to become incarnated as Jesus and then speak the truth to a world of self-loving humans with a nature and likeness to Satan, the father of lies, under the tyrannical leadership of Satan. Jesus being 100% the truth, speaking to a world of self-loving liars set at enmity with him was predestined to cause fireworks. This enmity between Jesus and Satan's minions was going to cause Jesus or God to inevitably be persecuted. But Jesus or God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, was willing to be humiliated and endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath that is, the non-elect fitted to destruction before the foundation of the world, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, that is, the elect, which he had afore prepared, that is, before the foundation of the world, had afore prepared unto glory. Think about that. The creator of the universe is going to become incarnated and confront us eagle maniac children of Satan in order to call out his elect from the non-elect. Common sense tells us that this means big time fireworks. Therefore, suffering is built into the plan of salvation. And Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth, was going to suffer right along with his elect. But this physical suffering was simply a shadow of the spiritual suffering Jesus would endure when he who knew no sin was made sin by his father. That is original sin, forcing his father under the necessity of the law to punish his son in hell that his elect might escape hell. Jesus exhorts his elect about how they must also suffer. Matthew chapter 5 verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That is the righteousness of God. For they shall be filled. That is, they shall be filled with my love, not their own self-love. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, 
That is, blessed are the true Christians who are calling out the elect to make peace with God through repentance and thus hungering and thirsting after his righteousness. Verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, those who preach the righteousness of God as their ticket into heaven, as opposed to self-righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 11, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Verse 13, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Verse 14, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. Verse 15, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Verse 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law for you. Verse 18, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled in other words this earth becomes a war zone a spiritual war zone for jesus came not to bring peace but a sword matthew 10 verse 32 whosoever Therefore shall confess me, that is Jesus, before men, him will I, Jesus, confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Verse 33, but whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I, Jesus, also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Verse 34, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Verse 35, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
verse 36, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Verse 37, he that loveth father or mother more than me, that is Jesus, is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we'll find that Job was having a hard time confronting his children. Verse 38, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Verse 39, he that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Verse 40, he that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him, my father, that sent me. Hopefully we as natural men Americans can see that Jesus is calling out his elect to be a light to the world. But the darkness comprehended not the light for men love the darkness over the light, that is Jesus, lest their sins or spiritual law-breaking be exposed and they found to be spiritual criminals. But in this spiritual war, Jesus and his elect's heel will be bruised, but they will be victorious and bruise Satan's head and the head of his seed, that is the non-elect's head. We will now turn to the spiritual battle between Job and Satan and the lessons Job had to learn amidst his suffering. We will look to the reason why God released the break on his retractable angel lease and allowed Satan to create havoc in Job's life that he might deny his Savior, just as Apollon or Satan tempted Christian to deny Jesus that he might come back and serve him, that is Satan, by giving Jesus the slip. But before we dive into the battle between Satan and Job, let us turn to Pilgrim's Progress to remind us as Christians that we must face our three spiritual enemies head on. We must face Satan head on. We must face the world head on, and we must face our sin nature head on and not choose the easier path, but stay on the highway of the righteousness of God as the crow flies and confront head on any difficulty that might confront us and never veer off course. We found in previous messages how Abraham and Sarah, after 16 years of being barren, turned to their own strength rather than waiting patiently on God for the promised child, Isaac. They turned to Sarah's Egyptian servant, Hagar, to conceive and bear the child, Ishmael, whom God rejected as being the promised child. Instead of waiting on God and the promise of God, Abraham and Sarah turn to their own efforts and thus Ishmael was conceived through Hagar. 
in Pilgrim's Progress, being weary of the difficulties on the highway of righteousness to the celestial gate, Christian chose a parallel path which appeared to be easier, but in reality was much more treacherous. And in trying to return to the righteous highway, he became so worried that he fell asleep in the land of giant despair and being horribly persecuted was even contemplating suicide. But alas, after much prayer, Christian was reminded that he had the key of promise in his bosom and he pulled it out and used it to open the gate and the escaped giant despair. Let us now pick up excerpts of this story in Pilgrim's Progress to remind us how important the promises of God are to the Christian when his self-righteousness has perished, that is. Let us now pick up the story. Quote, Hopeful, my brother Christian, said he, Rememberest thou not how valiant thou hast been heretofore? Apollon could not crush thee nor could all that thou didst hear or see or feel in the valley of the shadow of death. What hardship, terror, and amazement hast thou already gone through? And art thou now nothing but fear? Thou seest that I am in the dungeon with thee, a far weaker man by nature than thou art, Christian. Also, this giant has wounded me as well as thee and hath also cut off the bread and water from my mouth. And with thee I mourn without the light. But let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how thou playest the man at Vanity Fair and wast neither afraid of the chain nor cage nor yet of bloody death. Wherefore, let us at least to avoid the shame that becomes not a Christian to be found in, bear up with patience as well as we can. Well, on Saturday, about midnight, the pilgrims began to pray and continued in prayer till almost break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out in this passionate speech. What a fool, quoth me. Am I thus to lie in this stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty? I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that led into the castle yard, and with his key of promise opened that door also after he went to the iron gate for that must to be opened too. That lock went exceedingly hard 
Yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But that gate as it opened made such a creaking that it waked giant despair. When we as Christians do not agonize as the crow flies to the straight is the gate and narrow is the way, or forge as the crow flies to the celestial gate after we are saved, we can expect persecution be on its way, that the trial of our faith, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let us look upon the events that led up to Satan persecuting Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright. None of us natural men Americans are perfect because perfect means holy. And the only way any of us can be holy is if we can keep our Father in Heaven's commands perfectly, which is impossible. None of us except who? That is correct. Except Jesus is holy. Job, as a believer, was a liar just like we are. But from his father in heaven's perspective, he was perfect because Job had the perfect righteousness of Jesus imputed to him. And his father in heaven saw his son's perfect obedience as Job's obedience. And thus, Job was considered perfect. Uh, continuing on. And Job was one that feared God and eschewed evil. Job also feared God. And fearing God is the beginning of spiritual knowledge, showing that Job was a new spiritual creation. Verse 2, And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. Verse 3, His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. Verse 4, and his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one in his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Verse 5, and it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings. The burnt offering represented the righteousness of God. And Job rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all, that is his children. For Job said, it may be, that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, what is missing in this story? If we think our sons or daughters could be in sin, what is the first thing we as Americans should do? That is correct. We should investigate to see if they were into sins against God or not. If Job would have done this, he would not have been guessing whether or not his family was into sin or not. 
If they were into sin, then he should have confronted them. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Verse 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take, take with thee one or two more. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Verse 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. But instead of confronting his children, Job performed the burnt offering as a sacrifice which represented the righteousness of God. But we have discussed many times that we will not hunger and thirst after righteousness of God apart from repentance over original sin. Samuel confronted King Saul about this. Verse 22, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity, that is self-righteousness, and idolatry. Because thou, King Saul, hath rejected the word of the Lord, God hath also rejected thee from being king. So obedience is better than sacrifice. Was Job obedient? It appears not, for he was guessing about whether or not they were into sin. Now Eli, the priest that brought up Hannah's Samuel at the tabernacle, was confronted by Samuel as instructed by God. Eli talked to his corrupt sons, but did not take action to remove them from their job of taking the sacrifices of the people. And God took out not only Eli's son, but Eli himself. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, that is Satan. They knew not the Lord. 1 Samuel 2, 22. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Verse 23, And he, that is Eli, their father, said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Verse 24, Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. Verse 25. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Now, what is the problem? Eli talked to his sons 
but he did not remove them from their jobs. And so they went on in this horrendous sin of laying with the women as they came up with their sacrifices. Do we as American parents look the other way when our children are in sin? Or do we confront them, discipline them until the sin is stopped? We must remember that our children are commanded to be obedient to us as parents. And that is why it is so important that we correct the little things in their life before they become big things. When we see our own evil proclivities of our heart, we are just like an alcoholic. An alcoholic can recognize another alcoholic a mile away. When we see the evil proclivities of pride and lying tendencies in our own heart, we will be able to see them much more quickly in our children's heart. And we, and we begin correcting these evil proclivities of their heart little by little from the time they are infants until they are young adults. But what happens if these evil proclivities get out of hand? Well, we all know what happens. And we see it happening every day in children's lives whose parents did not start early in correcting the evil proclivities of their children's heart and making their children aware of these evil proclivities. We don't want to end up like Eli, where God has to take out our children. Verse 15, now Eli was 90 and eight years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. Verse 16, and the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, what is there done, my son? Verse 17, and the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines, and there hath been also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. Verse 18, and it came to pass when he made mention of the ark that Eli fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck brake and he died for he was an old man and heavy and he had judged Israel for 40 years. Verse 11, and the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were slain. Now Eli knew about this for through Samuel, who was a child, Eli was warned what was going to happen to his family if he did not take action against his sons. First Samuel chapter three, verse seven. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. Verse eight, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Verse 9, Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, 
if he call thee that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Verse 10, And the Lord came and stood and called as other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. Verse 11, And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. Verse 12, In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will make also an end. Verse 13, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he, that is Eli, restrained them not. He did not restrain his two sons. Verse 14, And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. Verse 15, And Samuel lay until the morning and opened the door of the house of the Lord. And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision, but he did. So Eli did not restrain his sons and thus God slew both of them. So hopefully we that are American Christians take heed to this, that it is very important to confront our children and to restrain them for their own sake from their own evil heart. We must begin early and little by little correct all these evil proclivities of their heart as the fruit of these evil proclivities are displayed in them. But also help our children to know that each one of them is unique and has unique talents. And on the back of our coin, it says, E pluribus unum, out of the many one. So we are to help our children nurture their own uniqueness. But their talents will be destroyed if their evil sin nature is not put in check. So there is a balance between helping our children to nurture their unique talents and at the same time restraining the evil that is within them and helping them to recognize that evil that they might restrain themselves. Young Samuel, who the Lord spoke to about Eli's corrupt sons, his mother was Hannah, who was barren for years, and she cried in a prayer the following, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. And Hannah vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. Therefore, Samuel was brought up working with Eli at the tabernacle. When God answered her prayer and gave her Samuel, she prayed this prayer. 
which Jesus' mother prayed almost identically after Jesus was virgin born. Here is an excerpt of that prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and he bringeth up. Most all of us Americans have no problem believing that God made us alive. But it is shocking to most of us Americans to think it is not old age or an accident that we die. But it is the Lord that killeth us. Verse 7. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. Verse 8. He raises up the poor out of the dust. That is the poor and needy. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit are the spiritual beggars. So verse 8, He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. Verse 9, He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. And that is what we had quoted with Abraham Lincoln, that the Lord is the overruling power. And it is the duty of not only individuals, but nations to acknowledge that the Lord is the overruling power. The psalmist in Psalm 127 confirms this. Verse 1, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Then King Solomon in Proverbs 21 says this, verse 1, The king's heart, that would be like President Biden or President Trump, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. So let us remember as Americans, except the Lord build our homes, except the Lord build our nation, we as Americans labor in vain that build it. All is vanity if we do not acknowledge that the Lord is the overruling power not only in our American homes, but in our America, our American nation. Now back to Hannah's prayer. Verse 8, He raises up the poor out of the dust, and he lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. 
Verse 9, he will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail nor nation. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Do not we as Americans need to remember this, to know this, and to teach this to our children? So let us reread again. Verse 6, Hannah prays, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Now let us return to the story of Job. While reflecting back on Hannah's prayer, let us be reminded that Job is about to lose not only his fortune and his health, but he is about to lose his family. Again, Job chapter 1, verse 4. And Job's sons went and feasted in their houses, everyone his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Verse 5. And it was so, when the days of their feastings were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Again, this burnt offering that Job was offering represented the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we've mentioned many times that the righteousness of God cannot be untied from a broken spirit and a contrite heart. For without a broken spirit and a contrite heart, we will never hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Jesus Christ. King David, in his psalm of repentance, that is Psalm 51, says the following, verse 16, For thou... Lord, desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delighteth not in burnt offerings. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Verse 18, do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 19. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, that is the righteousness of God, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then, then shall they offer bullocks upon the altar. Just as the Israelites were not to offer sacrifices apart from a broken spirit and a contrite heart, we are to come to the Lord Jesus with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Without being in a state of repentance, we cannot have fellowship with our Lord in the meditation upon his word. We are going to find out that Job 
though he be the great man that he was, had again to relearn that he needed to be in a state of repentance. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, the sons of God are the believers. The only way we can be a son of God is if we have had the image of God reinstated upon us through the righteousness of God being imputed to us. So these were believers that came to present themselves before the Lord. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. Now Satan is the father of lies. Satan is a murderer by nature. Satan walks to and fro upon this earth like a roaring lion. So when Satan shows up to this public worship, he's up to no good. He is evil by nature. He's not coming there to worship. He's coming there in hopes of causing mischief. But Satan is on God's dog leash or his angel leash. And he is going to unleash Satan to teach Job the importance of remaining in a state of repentance. As Martin Luther has said, the entire life of the Christian is a life of repentance. Again, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, the believers, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Verse 7. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, which means that he had the righteousness of Jesus Christ. One that feareth God. The moment that we become a new creation, we fear God. All true believers fear God. One that feareth God and escheweth evil. Verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Verse 10, Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. So Satan says, the only reason he worships you is because of all these things you have given him. He's one of the richest people in the land. And Satan goes on, verse 11. But 
Put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Remember when Christian was confronted by Apollon, and Apollon told Christian that many professing believers, fast food free will believers, gave Jesus the slip and returned to his service. Satan is saying the same thing to God here, that if you take away everything he has, he's going to give you the slip. He is going to turn on you. Verse 12, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. In other words, you can do anything to him that you like, but you cannot take his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Verse 14. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, the oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. Verse 15. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 16. When he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came another also and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Verse 19. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And only I am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 20, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Verse 21, And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So far, Job is okay with God. And this should remind us of what Martin Luther said about what it means to be a sinner. Martin Luther writes, And thus we are all ready to say, 
I am a most wretched sinner, but seldom, if ever, does a man want to be a sinner. For what is it to be a sinner, if not to be worthy of all punishment and trouble? And to confess with your mouth that you are such a person, but to be unwilling to act like a sinner, this is hypocrisy. This is lying, for it befits a righteous man to have peace, glory, honor, and all good things. Therefore, if you deny that you are righteous, you must also deny these good things. And if you confess that you are a sinner, you must take punishments, injuries, ignominy, that is public shame, as your own, your rightful possessions. But you must flee those things as belonging to someone else, which belong only to the righteous man. Therefore, if shame or an insulting word, if beating or an injury, if condemnation or a disease befall you, and you say, I do not deserve it, why must I endure it? An injury has been done me. I am innocent. Are you not therefore denying that you are a sinner? Are you not resisting God and with your mouth convicting yourself as a liar. For with all these things, God is proving that you are a sinner because he brings to you the things that befit a sinner. And he cannot err or lie, but you rise up and contradict him, resisting and opposing him as if God were the one acting wickedly, foolishly, and dishonestly. And in this you are like those of whom we spoke above. For those are factions and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness. For you also do not obey the truth, that is, the works of God, which have rightly come against you. But if you say when these things happen, indeed, I surely deserve these things, I have been justly treated. I freely admit that I am a sinner and that all these things are just and true. I have certainly sinned against thee so that thy actions and thy words are justified and thou art the truthful and righteous God that are not mistaken concerning me. There is no lying in thee for just as in all these things thou dost show that I am a sinner. Behold, this is simply saying, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil which is in thy sight, so that thou art justified in thy words. I am a most wretched sinner. Page 216, Martin Luther's Commentary on Romans. Now back to Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again there was a day, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Again, Satan is always up to mischief. 
Verse 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence thou comest? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Verse 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. So at this point, Job has acted as if he really is a sinner. And the Lord says that Job had maintained his integrity, even though the Lord allowed Satan to take away his fortune and his family. He has not charged God, that is, blamed God, but has acted as a sinner that deserves God's punishment. Verse 4, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Verse 5, Put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Verse 6, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So again, Satan is on God's dog leash, his angel leash. Verse 7, So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Verse 8. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Verse 9. Then said the wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Verse 10, but Job said unto his wife, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Verse 11, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place. Eliphaz the Tamanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. Verse 12. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept and they rent every one his mantle, and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. Verse 13. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now after this, his three friends begin to contend with him. And in chapter 9, verse 20, Job says this, if I 
justify myself. My own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. And he has not charged God. But when we get to chapter 38, our Lord begins to rebuke Job. Job 38, verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, verse 2, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Verse 3. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Verse 4. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Verse 5, Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Verse 6, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Verse 7, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Chapter 39, verse 26. Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom and stretch her wings toward the south? Verse 27. Doth the eagle mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? Verse 28. She dwelleth and abideth on the rock, upon the crag of the rock and the strong place. Verse 29. From thence she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off. Verse 30, her young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is she. And now we will find that the Lord chides Job for contending with him, and Job repents. Job chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, verse 2, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, verse 4, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Verse 5, Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Verse 6, Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Verse 7, Gird up thy loins like a man. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Verse 8, Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me, that thou mayest be righteous? Is not this very close to what Martin Luther was saying? Job chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, verse 2, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Verse 3. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Verse 4, 
Hear, I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Verse 6, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. It is a life of repentance, knowing that our works make void faith and make the promises of none effect. A life of repentance with faith in the promises is what keeps us on the righteousness of God highway to the celestial gate as the crow flies. Verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Verse 11. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. Verse 12, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 she-asses. Verse 13, He had also seven sons and three daughters. Verse 14, And he called the name of the first Gemina and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third Karen Apuk. Verse 15, And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. Verse 16, After this lived Job an hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. Verse 17, So Job died being old and full of days. Let us conclude with Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him as that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Verse 16, For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth. For the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. Verse 17, For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. 
verse 18. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. Verse 19. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is afar off. And to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. Verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Verse 21. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. To be continued, may the Lord bless thee. And keep thee in the name of Jesus. Amen.